Hey podcast friends, Helen here. Greg and I are sitting here quivering with excitement about today's episode of The Eater Upsell. Who are we talking with, Greg? Today we're talking to Flynn McGarry, aka the teen chef. Because he's a teenager and he's a chef. And a chef. Flynn has uh, gotten a lot of media love and also a lot of media hate over the last couple of years simply because he is a teenager who is running restaurants. So it's going to be pretty cool to sit down and talk with him about what that's been like. And as you might expect from someone who decided to open his own tasting menu pop-up at the age of 16, he's pretty articulate. This is not your average lull-speak texting conversation with a stereotypical teenager. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we got a chance to chat with him. But first, Helen, there's something I wanted to chat with you about. I live in a, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, that is like moderately cool. It's on the edge of cool. And there are lots of restaurants. And wherever there are lots of restaurants, some will be great and some will be mediocre. And there was this restaurant that I sort of liked. I always wanted to like it more than I actually did. There was a really good kind of place to take your parents if they were in town and you had to bring them out to brunch to somewhere that would have parent-friendly food and a relatively comfortable chairs. Mm and it was like a hippish place and it had a bar and it had kind of like a hop and scene. And, and it, it was run by these fairly well-known in New York restaurateurs who have a, a very small but beloved restaurant empire. And whenever I went to this restaurant, which is sort of Italian inflected, I always felt like something was always a little wrong. Like okay. uh-huh. the service was not super great or the prices were a dollar or two more than they should have been. Or there was just this sense of like you guys as a business are sort of trying to take advantage of your guests rather than like be warmly hospitable towards them. Yeah, that is a real almost deal ender right there when you get that feeling. But anyway. Well, so a few months ago, suddenly they closed and Mm -hmm. the windows were papered over and they repainted the exterior and there was a new name up there and they reopened. And it turns out they had had moderately remodeled the interior. They've like bought new chairs and Mm -hmm. painted some dark colored walls white. And, And it's a new restaurant, same owners, same staff. But instead of being this vaguely Italian place where you want to take your parents for brunch, the new idea is that it's like super casual artery clogger food. You know, like what I think of is like, you know, everything is fried, but it's like upscale artery clogger. Yes. Yes. Artisan artery clog. Yes. Artisan clogging food. Gorgeous. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like platinum Lipitor. Right. And because I try to be a good citizen of my neighborhood, et cetera. I went for lunch when they were just a few days old. My husband and I dropped by and we sat down at a table and we got the menu and I ordered a cheeseburger and my husband ordered a fried chicken sandwich and our server said, hey, would you like lettuce and tomato on your cheeseburger? And I said, yes, I would. And she pointed out on the menu that right underneath the cheeseburger, which for the record was $14, there was a line that said, if you want lettuce and tomato on your cheeseburger, it will be a dollar more. That should always come with the cheeseburger. Um, it's not like bacon or, you know, it's not like an extra patty or anything. No, lettuce no, and tomato. Yeah. A dollar extra for lettuce and tomato. This alone would be an outrage, right? A dollar for lettuce and tomato on a $14 cheeseburger is its own capital offense. Yeah. it's But it's like the warm up to a bigger offense, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. Because, oh my God, being a sucker and also understanding that a burger should have lettuce and tomato on it in certain contexts. We can talk about that in a later episode of The Upsell. I got the lettuce and tomato for the extra dollar. And 
my server said, would you like fries or a salad? And figuring I would offset my lunch of a double cheeseburger with at least a gesture towards virtuousness, I got the side salad. And when my cheeseburger with side salad showed up, Greg, the lettuce on the burger was just a handful of the mesclun mix that was also the side salad. Oh, man, that's cold. It's not just cold. It's unacceptable. Like I have been literally weeks. It has been weeks. And I have been walking around every day. I pass this restaurant on my way to the subway every morning and on my way home every night. And every single time I walk past, I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You could have not requested the lettuce and tomato, gotten the side salad and then just put that on the burger because it would have been the same thing. The, the levels on which this is horrible is just like, let me enumerate the layers of my rage like first the dollar which in the grand scheme of things a dollar is a dollar like I am fortunate enough that a dollar is a rounding error on my daily expenditure as far as cheeseburgers are concerned but if you want if it's going to cost you $15 like to sell someone this cheeseburger just make it a $15 cheeseburger don't make me have to pay extra for my lettuce and tomato but then for the lettuce to be something that came already with it but then on top of that Mesclun mix has no place on a hamburger. No place. There's no burger. No place. No, no. place. No place. Like it's like a hamburger on a salad with no bun or something like that. Like it's like a hamburger. Even salad. then, it's questionable, right? Yeah. Like I mean, yeah. mesclun mix is its own strange thing that I think is overdeployed in the restaurant world. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental notion of lettuce on a burger is to add crunch. And textural contrast and also I think like a temperature contrast, right? Like you want it to be cold and crunchy as a contrast to the hot, juicy, soft meat. It's not a huge flavor thing. No. And, and, you know, there are... There are hamburger dogmatists out there who believe certain things, and I respect their beliefs. But, but the the path of the burger that I follow says that the acceptable hamburger lettuce is iceberg. Iceberg. Uh-huh. Yep. And that is it. Mm-hmm. That's it. You would only put mesclun mix on a burger if you were like an alien who descended into Earth and you were like, oh, they put leaves on their hamburgers. I don't understand why or what kind of leaf. Right. So I will just grab some shit off trees and put it on this burger. I bet they were kind of wilted and slimy, too, huh? From the steam from the burger. Yes. It was just, oh, it was so awful, Greg. It was so awful. I mean, that's the thing with iceberg is it stands up. I paid a dollar for something that came on the side and was the wrong thing anyway. You know, Helen, I think that... In some ways, we could possibly spin off an entire other podcast that's all about lettuce in hamburgers because I have a lot of thoughts about them, too. Tell me some of your thoughts. As you know, I'm out in L.A. right now and, um, you know, burgers are a big deal. And I just can't reconcile how much fucking lettuce is in these hamburgers that they eat out here. Like, like really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm talking about like. Even your classic In-N-Out style burger, it comes with like a side salad worth of lettuce. On the burger. On the burger. Do you have to pay a dollar extra for it? No, it's just, no, it's like, it's like a style of burger. It's like the Southern California, you know, kind of shitty white bun that dissolves when you hold it in your hands and like a patty that's incredibly thin and basically doesn't taste like anything. Thousand Island dressing, a lot of it. And then like, you know, a good three quarters of an inch to an inch of like stacked lettuce leaves like that is like what so- kind of lettuce it's like iceberg lettuce you know which is at least the acceptable lettuce it's the acceptable right? lettuce and then you might get like um you know one circle of kind of thickly cut onion and like one mm-hmm. tomato in there but as soon as you bite into it it's like you're eating this weird salad in your hand that has like some big soggy crouton and a little bit of meat and 
I'm really, really trying to get it like to hang with it and to get into the SoCal burger thing. But I'm just like, this is like some weird like cafeteria salad to go, you know? You know, that um is one of my road tripping strategies. The mm-hmm. the notion of the burger salad. I don't know if you've ever driven down the beautiful New Jersey Turnpike. Have not actually. At several of the rest stops along the New Jersey Turnpike, there are Roy Rogers restaurants. Yeah. And the thing that Roy Rogers has, which also one of my childhood favorite chains, Fuddruckers, additionally offers, mm-hmm. is you buy your burger from them and it comes with nothing on it. It's just a burger on a bun or a burger and a piece of cheese on a bun. I like that. And then there is a topping bar. Oh, cool. Uh-huh. And my move often when I stop at these places on a road trip is I get my burger or whatever I'm getting. And then I get so much, so much from the topping bar that I effectively make a salad. So I'll get Mm -hmm. like tons of iceberg lettuce and tomato and pickles and onions. And maybe I'll even make a Thousand Island dressing by combining their ketchup and their mayonnaise. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And it's a a free side salad along with my burger. Right, right. Which in many respects is the opposite of the bullshit $14 cheeseburger that I had when I had to pay a dollar extra in order to have the complimentary side salad manually placed on top of my burger for me, which I did not want and categorically reject. It's it's the, yeah, it's like the inverse of that. It's so weird. I think that like, you know, as burgers are now basically a staple on every single restaurant menu, right? They Every restaurant, Mm -hmm. if it's a Mexican restaurant, it's a Japanese restaurant, it doesn't matter. There's Mm going to be a burger on the menu because everybody wants to order a burger. And in our beautiful modern era people are willing to pay as i suckerly was $14 for a cheeseburger so of course mm-hmm. you're going to put it on the menu it's a spectacular profit leader yep put some goddamn pride into your burger yes yes yeah i have i have been very careful over the the weeks that i've carried this rage in my heart to not name this restaurant because i think that like despite the fact that over the years i've given them many many attempts to prove to me that they are good people and every single time they break my heart and stomp on it and leave me feeling very reachful. Like, literally, Greg, I, I I, almost signed up for a Yelp account. Oh, my God. Today in the Eater Upsell Studios, we have Flynn McGarry, the chef behind the Eureka Supper Club, uh, which is currently at Kava in New York City's West Village. But used to be in L.A. Yes. Hi, Flynn. Hello. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. Thanks for having me. We should we should deal with the elephant in the room. If if anybody listening is not previously aware of Flynn, pretty much the lead selling point for you, not as a cook but as a famous person, is that you are very young, right? Yes. This is factual. One would say. One would say that or my hair. You might have seen Flynn on some magazine covers, perhaps with titles like Chef at Fifteen, The Chef at Fifteen, or Teen Chef, or something like that. Because Flynn is indeed a teenager, but he is also a chef, chef of uh, tasting menu experience that is uh, very highly regarded and very popular and now has expanded from L.A. where it started and is now in New York City. You are no longer a 15-year-old chef. I'm not. It's not. weird how the passage of time works like that. Like, it's crazy how three years just goes by like that. So you're now an 18-year-old 18 chef. 18-year-old chef, yes. Which is like you're... Technically still a teenage chef, but I would argue you are now an adult chef by legal definition. By legal terms, yes, I'm now an adult chef. So has every, like when you turned 18, did everything just change? No one cares anymore. I'm (laughs) shocked you guys had me on here. (laughs) You have no value. (laughs) Go away. So as you've been in New York with your Eureka pop-up 
it's been about three months, two and a half months since you. I've, I've been in New York for a. I've lived in New York for a year and a half, but and I had a Eureka at a different right. location last year. But its current incarnation. Its current incarnation has been like three months. So has it? Well, you know, let's back up with the question since it did have its whole life about a year ago. How has it evolved? Um, you know, between New York version one and New York version two. It's gotten smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I realize the thing with, with pop-ups is just because of how unpredictable they are and how you're starting it with no investment, with more or less just like what is the bare minimum you need to serve someone this meal, that it's always better to get rid of as much kind of overhead as possible. So if I want to go... Like we're going to go back, I'm going to go back to LA to do something for a little bit in January or whatever. And we're not kind of carrying this heavy weight. So, I mean, the first pop-ups I was doing were for like 50, 60, 80 people. And then it kept going down in size, down in size. Now we're serving eight people or two seating space. We serve 16 people a night. As far as I understand, but correct me if I'm wrong, you were doing most of the cooking, the active cooking during all of these meals, right? I mean, I still am. And you still Which is are. probably so a lot easier unusual... for a seating of eight than it is for a seating of I still wouldn't describe 50. it as easy, but it is easier. Easier. It's a relative. But I mean, that is, that is unusual even in New York where, I mean, you do have places like uh, Brooklyn Fair where there is one chef who is at a counter, but like Cesar Ramirez has, you know, a bunch of people that work with him behind the counter, whereas during the experience it's mostly just you and obviously you've had some help preparing things and you know yeah I mean, we have i have a staff of two people and they sort of help i have someone who helps with all of the kind of service and wine and i have one cook who helps with kind of prepping and and some aspects of service but it's this thing where i really wanted it to be an experience where like i'm cooking you dinner because when i mean with kind of eureka there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, quote unquote like hype pieces and things that are just about like people come in not having any clue really what it is. And that's why I wanted to kind of take everything away and just have a an experience where like you're sitting two feet away from me and I'm going to cook you dinner. And I mean, also be able to, I, I show up every day and I work all of the stations. So I, I get to do, I get to see the business aspect of it. I get to, I still am like picking my own herbs and like doing kind of every job that goes into the restaurant. I help with polishing glasses. It's this thing where I wanted to, with this pop-up, learn is still keep learning before I open like a permanent place. And I'll still be learning then. But so I'm honing my skills as just working. Like before I started doing these pop-ups, I couldn't even imagine cooking a 15-course meal for 24 people a night by myself. I mean, that seems like a... But giant now, thing. No, and, and now like somehow I, I don't sleep, but I can make <laughs> it happen. And it's this, it's made me much stronger, like cook from a skill perspective as well, because I'm also learning about how to think about food from like execution. And, and that's a, a lot of the reason why I wanted to make it so small. And also when you're cooking for that many people cannot afford having a staff. I think it's really interesting that you are so, um, focused on the business side of this, like that, you know, when we first started talking about this a couple of minutes ago, like one of the first things you said was it's smaller because it's just logistically easier and, and things like backing and overhead. 
I imagine that when people fantasize about becoming a chef or when they decide that food is the thing that they're going to be interested in, the operational logistics of actually running a restaurant is not the first thing that comes to mind. But you're very fluent in it. I've spent the past year trying to figure out a fine dining model that makes money in New York City, and it is not that fun. Huh. Wow. <laughs> you hey, and a lot you know, of when people, you figure it out, you should let us all I, know. I, so I'm trying. I'm really trying. No, I mean, it's this thing where, like, you're, I mean, your two biggest things in New York are rent and labor. Right. And the way that I figured out how to cut out, kind of cut down on both of those is in every fine dining restaurant I've worked in, it's like 50% labor. So if you're serving 100 people, you have 50 people on staff. And to think about it from opposed to that, to think about it from like a turn aspect. So right now we're technically at 50% or sort of 50% labor because it's three of us cooking for eight people, but we're actually cooking for 16. So it's cutting that down by half because at a, at a time, it's like we're doing two dinner services. Right. And you get to be half the size right. by doing like a turn. And I think that like people, obviously like certain restaurants want to stagger it and people want to come at eight o'clock or whatever. And that's kind of the, the give and take of like, you give up that like people wanting to come at eight o'clock seating because you need to do like a six and a nine. But I mean, like Blanca does that. A lot of restaurants. A Tara are, does that. Tara right. does it just because, I mean, every square foot is a hundred dollars. Yeah. So like, if you, wow. really, if you think about it like that, you're like, why would I open a big restaurant that has 40 seats? Because now we have to pay that regardless of whether or not 40 people come or two people come. I think, you know, everybody in New York talks all the time or in the New York restaurant world talks all the time about how real estate really is the secret driving force. And yeah. it's not always part of the public conversation about why the New York restaurant scene is doing X or is doing Y. But you look at the move towards counter fine dining in the last eight yeah. years and it's 100 percent bad, right? Like, I mean, I think that is driving everything. It, I mean, that like I said, that and how labor costs is going up. And it's not even going up because we, it has to. It's going up because of rent costs because I, you can't pay a cook $10 an hour and they, they can't afford to live here. Right. It's not just the rent on the restaurant. It's, it's like, how rent. are you going to live your life? Exactly. And so it's definitely, I mean, I, it's not fun. <laughs> so how does that um, not fun stuff interact for you with the more creative side of cooking? Like, how do you hold both of the both of these in your head at the same time? It's been something that I've been like practicing and and learning a lot about. And to me, it, it, I mean, you need to have it because, like, if I was, I know a lot of chefs, they just they do the creative, and someone else deals with the with the business thing. But to me, I can't do eat like one without the other because I, I mean, in the end of the day, I am more creative than I am a business person. And that kind of comes with the job, but I can't just be putting on like certain dishes or whatever that blow out our food cost because it's also my living. It's my cook's living. It's all these things that have to like counteract with the creativity. And I mean, that's, that's the unfortunate aspect of being both a business person and, and a creative is it's compromise on both ends. Um, but it's, I like to take it as kind of a challenge and, and have actually started to somewhat enjoy numbers when they work. So you have you have a staff of a few people. Do you like being the boss, or is that like a stressful thing? I mean, it's it's a stressful thing because it's people that are like relying on you, and I have to make sure that these people can can live and have like a nice life. And 
and I mean, I, I enjoy it. And I, though, I mean, because we're so small, we're such a tiny team that it's not really like I'm like the, I mean, in the end of the day, I'm boss, but it's, I mean, we're all really good friends with each other and it's, it becomes like a more, t- I mean, I, I enjoy it more than just doing literally everything by myself. Cause then it just gets kind of like, you're on a ship that's kind of going down all the time and alone. <laughs> yeah. At least now there's people to be like, this is, we're fucked every day. Yeah. Can I curse on this? Yes. Okay, yes, you cool. can. <laughs> Did you ever get in the weeds doing that thing by yourself? I mean, I am know, in the weeds every yourself? day, but that's why I show yeah. up at like six in the morning is so I, I've, I've never knock on wood. I've never, ever not been ready for service since we've started this. Every time someone walks in the door, we're ready to serve them. And that's because certain days I would, I mean, I would sleep at the restaurant and start cooking at four in the morning if I had to. I mean, it's a very, the show must go on. Yeah. I mean, it is a performance, right? Like you're there, you're serving people. You, you can't just, there's no, this isn't going to happen. Right. There's an hour before service when we're like, this isn't going to happen, but that's never a reality. Like it always has to happen. How do you get your game face on? Like when people walk in the door and you have to stand, like you said, two feet in front of them and hand them a plate of food. I've gotten really good at freaking out in my head and not letting anyone know. That's a good life skill. It's a it's a really good thing. People are like, you look so calm. I'm like, I'm not. But <laughs> yeah, I'm just got, I've just gotten really good at putting on like this face of like everything's fine. Like I've messed up things in front of people and they didn't know it. And then I fixed it and they still didn't know it. And like that's something that's why I don't like doing a counter, honestly, is really? like it's I, I like having an open kitchen, but I think a counter is almost too you're too in everyone's. I hear everyone's conversation like it's I, I would like them to enjoy their meal and be able to have like at your own table. You could have any experience you want and a counter. It's almost too much like a show, in my opinion. Like if I go to a counter, I don't feel like I could just like sit down and enjoy like having a conversation with a friend at dinner. You feel like you're kind of like also on show because you're with all these other people and and you're sitting next to your person and we've talked to chefs on on the show before who have basically said that you know they didn't totally realize how much they were performing every night when they when they decided to sort of go the counter direction like oh for sure it really is just like you're an actor you have to put your face on you have your lines that you say when you hand over the dishes you can hear the same jokes over and over again like ah like oh i make the same jokes like i mean it's (laughs) it's patter it's you have i mean it's made me really good at schmoozing but it's no i mean it's it's i like it because also people are coming to see me and be like what is this thing and they also aren't seeing it in this way that it's such a show it's like it's a show but i'm also cooking your food and like you're seeing the real aspect of it and it's not like it's a show in this overly produced aspect it's a show in the way where yeah we kind of we light it like a show and it's like people are watching you move around um my favorite is people are always afraid to like talk to me oh that's so weird at the counter and we always make the joke of like i like we don't bite like it's like they're like kind of like they're like afraid to like bother us or whatever but so maybe I also really good at multitasking. So like I can play it and have a conversation and um, it's, I mean, it's more though. Like I would rather have someone sitting at a table three feet away where like you could leave them alone and they could be in their own world opposed to someone literally right in front of you, like watching every single thing you do like a hawk. And also like if someone's a vegetarian and they get a different dish, everyone's like, what's that? Why don't we get that? 
it, it makes it, I mean, you can't really customize anyone's experience also. Um, I mean, th there's a lot of downsides to, to the counter, but there's also the upsides of people really now are fascinated with seeing everything that's going on. And they ask questions like, what's that? How you do that? They love seeing like the actual act of cooking too. And um, anytime we blowtorch something, people freak out. Who's been coming to eat your food? Has it been people that n knew the the tasting experience in LA? Is it like, are, are there chefs coming? Is it, you know, tourists? Like who who's at the counter every night? It is a huge range. I mean, we've had, we've had a few chefs come in, um, which is always really nice. And we've, I'd say a majority of it are these people who read the New York times thing. They read these articles and wanted to kind of try it out. Um, which is an interesting thing if we're getting people, cause those articles, they're always, a, a lot of the articles have been written from this aspect of he's a young chef opposed to really like going into what I actually do, like cook and all of that kind of stuff. So they're coming because of the, he's an 18 year old chef. And then we kind of are, I mean, we're serving a meal that costs the same as these other really high end restaurants. So then it's our job to deliver that same experience. And I, mean, I think we've done it so far. We, everyone who's kind of come with that, like, Oh, we're just going to see a kid chef is like, Oh, you guys can actually like run a proper service. Um, and then there's been a lot of reason. I've almost found it pretty crazy. I judged MasterChef Australia. And I'd say like 30% of our clientele is, has been Australians visiting. Wow. I mean, MasterChef is, <laughs> is big in the U S but it is globally like a phenomenon. But like, it's even like we had, we had a group of like five people the other day who were from like Amsterdam and they saw the MasterChef Australia episode there. And then they were like, we need to eat his place in, in New York. So there's been like a pretty decent amount of people visiting, which has always been crazy to me that we get all the, like we had this group two nights ago who in New York, they ate at, at, at Eureka, Love Madison Park and John George. And I was like, that's a crazy. It's a hell of a trifecta. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a huge compliment that we're being held at this kind of like higher level with, destination restaurants um considering that's most of your like 11 Madison park most people who go there are going like visiting new york and they go to eat there um just just if we could bring it back a little bit so flynn you started this supper club this experience out of your mom's you know where you grew up your mom's house yeah and then you know it kind of grew bigger from there and i know that Along the way, you stodged in a few restaurants. Were they all in America or were any of them overseas? Uh, no, I stodged at um, Maimo in Norway and Geranium in Copenhagen as well. Wow. Okay. And as in addition to that, you were also stodged at 11 Madison Park in New York and Alinea and Next in Chicago? Yeah. Run us through Is the resume. Yeah. Run us through the resume. <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, do yeah, the name what, dropping. Where else, where else are we? Yeah. I stodged those places. I, I, I worked at Alma in Los Angeles for, I was there for two years. I stodged at Modernist Cuisine for a little bit in really? Seattle. Wait, oh, I didn't wow. know about that part. That's yeah. really, so we um, had Nathan Mirvold on the upsell. I mean, what he and the team were doing there is so fascinating. I mean, I was prepping next to a malaria mosquito. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's a pretty crazy place. And it's so, oh my God. it's just pure intellect too, right? Like yeah. occasionally they'll have people in for meals, but it's not a restaurant. It's no, I mean, I, I went to lab. kind of just see like, well, I, I met them in, at something and and was like, I want to come see what the hell you guys are doing up there. And 
got to see kind of like the crazy experiments and tools and things that they have up there and have done a couple, like I did like a couple collaboration things with them and, um, but that was, that was a while ago. So what are you really excited about right now? Like technique wise or ingredient wise or trend wise, like what, what, what would get you really excited if someone said, I'm doing a restaurant, we're doing X. Man, am I that unexcitable? <laughs> we're all jaded here. We're all pretty jaded. Um, <laughs> I mean, sort of, which is like what I'm trying to do and, and I'm trying to find also from other restaurants is like a fine dining place that's like fun. Like in the end of the day, you can go and like feel like you're like a fine dining place that feels like you're at Wilder or whatever. That's just like a super chill, fun atmosphere that I feel like places that I've gone in Europe nail it. And I feel like it hasn't quite switched over here yet because what are the places that nail it in Europe? I think Noma probably nailed it the most was like, I was like, I just feel like I'm at like a like chill place. Like I totally had the same experience. Right? I think it's, I think because, because at a certain level and this is coming from a place of, I think all three of us here right now have eaten at a lot of fine dining restaurants and we have a lot of frames of reference and we're fairly fluent in the language of fine dining. And at a certain point, the food is always going to be wonderful. Yeah. And the and, food is always going to be great. And the way it's great will vary from place to place, but it will always be great. But if you can do something with the service or the framing of the meal or the experience of being there as a guest, not just as well, an eater, that's when it starts getting I like think it's, glittery and exciting. Yeah, I think it's, almost not it's not even really the service because from the actual like fundamental side of service to be a fine dining restaurant you need the same things so like the same way where like the food's always going to be good in a three Michelin star place or whatever the service always needs to be like on point like your silverware needs to be part like all those little details but I think there's a way to do them with this way where you don't even notice that it's going on and you're just having fun like I think I mean I think Blanca did that pretty well, but I mean, even that you feel like you're kind of like on state with these other people and it's like somewhere that you feels like you're like eating in someone's house and you're just hanging out, but the service is perfect because you, in the end of the day, if the service is so good, you shouldn't know that it's going on. Right. That's like the real thing is like, you shouldn't know that every little detail is being taken care of. It should just be taken care of and you should just be able to purely enjoy your experience enjoy your food enjoy your company enjoy the music enjoy like every aspect of it and I mean I I still think Noma did that the best which was like I was sitting there and I was like I'm eating an incredible meal and like everything's being set perfectly you don't really notice it and but you're having like a really chill conversation with one of the cooks or someone's like asking you like, like, let's meet up late. And it's just this very natural thing where you feel like you're at They're a friend's, friend's place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The thing that when I went to Noma not too long ago, the thing that really struck me, the meal was fantastic. But the thing that blew me away was two days later, I was getting a coffee at some random coffee shop in coffee Copenhagen. Collective? Probably. And ran into one of our servers, like ran into our captain. And she was like, oh, hey, like she knew me by name. She said, hi, we chatted. And it was the perfect kind of closure for the feeling that I had during the meal of I'm hanging out with my super cool friends. I mean, I hung and out, then they were my actual super cool friends. I hung out friends. at Noma for like three hours after my meal. And I had never met any of any of the cooks before. 
and I'm now friends with like three of the people that I just met because I went and ate there and they tr- like treated me. And obviously, like we're sort of in, in the industry and like that's. But everyone I know who's gone there has had the same thing, which is like they treat it like the service is just like very casual and and it's intimate and friendly. Yeah. And it's not like this very like white glove, like service stuffy. with a capital yeah, S. Exactly. Like I am serving you. Exactly. Kind of thing. And like be and like making you notice that they're serving you. Like look at how beautiful. Like all these things are. It's just like somewhere that you could just sit down, eat an incredible meal. Everything is like perfect, and you don't even notice it. Yeah, there are. I mean, you know, Blanca. I think definitely has that vibe. I ate at Atera a couple of times this year, and it was because I loved that feeling like it felt friendly I've gone, and I've cool gone to the new yeah Atera. well I had gone to the old Atera and liked it and thought it was interesting yeah. and I went to the new Atera with a friend she had a reservation and was blown away by exactly that vibe and immediately went home and made another reservation was like I have to go back because that is what I was looking for and so I mean it can happen in the U.S. it just no it can definitely happen it's gonna it, it's starting it to time. happen yeah. So Flint is like the grand plan someday to to open one of these places, like a permanent Eureka that is all these things that you're talking about that you like in other places, or you know, do you kind of want to keep doing it as a pop up? It's I'm so done with pop ups. <laughs> I've never been so done with doing. I mean, it's like it's they've been incredible and and a really great learning experience. But I've been doing pop ups for four years now, and it's that point where. We're constantly in someone else's space, and I feel like in the end of the day, we can't fully give everyone the experience that we want because we're working within all of these restrictions because I didn't fully build out the space and didn't fully do like the, all of the little tiny details that make a restaurant great are not in our control because we're in someone else's space that operates as something else. So, I mean, that's what's in – that's so Eureka's – um, we're taking a break and going to LA and possibly Tokyo and going to London. Um, and during this time, I'm also, we are looking at spaces and finishing kind of raising money for a permanent space. And would ideally like to open like the beginning of 2018. Wow. That's a very ambitious timeline. I mean, we got a year, a year and a year and some change. I mean, I think Greg, in all of your years covering the New York dining scene, what is the longest gap between a restaurant being announced and actually opening? Ooh, wow. That is a that is a really good question. Um, you know, in terms of really high-profile restaurants, um, Dan Kluger's new place comes to mind. I think it was like two years, but that's not even that long. It's two years. But there it's not place, even that long. It's not even that long. <laughs> There's a place in Red Hook called Grindhouse that took five years to open partially because of Hurricane Sandy, but wow. partially because of just a series of bad things that happened to the owner. I mean, I'm not trying to break um, your spirit. No, trust me. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost at the point where the spirit cannot be broken anymore. This yeah. city, you, you, if you're going into opening a restaurant here, you need you understand what is coming well, with it. Well, hopefully you understand. I mean, not, not you personally, yes. but hopefully a person understands. Hopefully a person understand. understands. Well, if you don't understand, then you're it fucked. takes five years. You're that's that's the fucked. reason that, like, I mean, the amount of people that I've talked to about, like, every single thing that you need. And I mean, the thing that usually holds it up is like bureaucracy. Right. Like red tape and permitting yeah. and stupid. And it, it's mostly permitting, but I mean that it really depends on what space you, I mean, I know a bunch of chefs who it took two years just to get a space. Right. So do you, um, I have, say 2018 
like ideally. All right. And it's, totally it's, a, cool. it's a year long. But that's too. the great thing. Like, it's like, I'm cool if we open 2018, 2020, whatever. You got tons of time. You're, you're 11 years old. Yeah. I got plenty of time. I mean, we might run out of food at a, after a certain point, so I just got to hit like that as a mark. culture. Right. Yeah, as like a, as as a like society, a, as like, like a mind, on Earth, like a planet, we, run we might food. run out of food. So soon. that feels like a good window, like before Earth runs out of actual food. Be like a last hurrah. Flynn McGarry will open a permanent restaurant. Well, then it won't be permanent. It'll be <laughs> an, it'll be another pop up. A temporarily permanent restaurant. A temporary permanent restaurant before, before the we earth lose is food. consumed in flames. Yep. And this is great. I mean, aren't all restaurants temporary? Yeah, and oh, sort of for long sure. Run of things? We are I all going to die. All the time about you should open a restaurant, say it's permanent, but it's actually a pop up, because I mean, you could just close a restaurant and then. I mean, all restaurants close. F- we all die. Like, it's a beautiful meditation a on point. our mortality. Yeah. Right. Some of them somehow <laughs> still stay open though. So on this very dark Amazingly. note, um, I think it's time for us to enter the portion of the podcast that we call the lightning round. Um, so Flynn, today we have a Is very there a lightning sound effect there. <laughs> it's like a uh, no, it's kind of more like you know sometimes you don't it's well like you, some jazzy little music. you don't really hear lightning. I mean, you hear the like thunder. It's usually accompanied thunder. by thunder, but it's the kind of lightning that doesn't have thunder. Okay. Yeah, we don't ever call it the thunder round. We could though. Well, no one calls it the thunder round. But we have a special we have a special guest lightning round question asker, Ooh. and that is uh, our colleague Hillary Dixler. Hillary has a bunch of questions for you. Great, take it away, Hillary. Let's do it. Hi, Flynn. I'm Hillary Dixler, senior editor of Eater, and I have some lightning round questions for you. What was the first thing you did when you turned eighteen? I I was sick. So the first thing I did was. Uh, I went and bought Dayquil. <laughs> Which you can, t- like the kind you had to be 18 no, to buy? No, but I could do that. I, you could do that before. I'm pretty, I don't know. I, I just think no one ever asks, but that was the first thing that I did on my 18th birthday. Cool. And then I went to the Nomad for lunch. Awesome. Like a boss. Yep. <laughs> I think when I turned 18, I bought a pack of cigarettes just well, you can't because do I could. Here. You can't in New York? It's 21. That's bullshit. Crazy, right? It's totally crazy. There's no point turning I 18 anymore. I felt like anymore. when I lived in New York, I saw like seven-year-old kids smoking every day. I mean, I'm sure they still do. Yeah. But it was like, the, it was more the principle of the thing. I was like, this is now a, like a commercial right afforded to me. I'm going to take advantage of it. And right. I think I smoked I'm one cigarette vote. and then I I'm felt guilty smoke. for a month. And then so yeah, it was I'm going to rent a car in certain states. Engage with pornography as a consenting adult. Like... <laughs> So much. I'm going to see an NC-17 movie. But you, I don't 17. Know 17. Se- it's right there in the name. Yeah, that's NC-17, true. Right there. Right. <laughs> Duh. What else, Duh. What else can you do? Anyway. All right. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to go down some dark, dark paths, and let's just go to Hillary's <laughs> next question. What's your go-to convenience store snack? That's really tough. It changes all the time. Chips. Just plain chips? No, salt and vinegar. Oh. Okay. That is a very or, that is a very good kind of chip. Or Tate's cookies. They have those in every bodega here for some reason. And I love it. It's amazing, right? Tate's was like this we high had the white end chocolate macadamia nut ones. No, but that's those are amazing. pretty crazy. It's weird that they're in every bodega. Every bodega, because they're like a, a, they started as this super fancy Hamptons cookie brand, and now it's like Oreos. They're literally yeah. everywhere. Only in New York, though. It's so bizarre. So fascinating. Okay, cool. Salt and vinegar chips and white chocolate macadamia cookies. What's next, Hillary? Name one dish you wish you had created. He's making a really serious thinking face. That's a tough one. Milk and honey, the nomad. 
Oh, the dessert. The dessert. I wish I that that it's probably one. It's probably my favorite dessert because I don't like dessert, but I really like that. So, what goes into that dessert? To milk sorbet with a like a honey caramel thing and like a milk foam, dehydrated milk foam, and like an oat honey crumble. It's really good. It's really good. It's like really good. And I'm I'm also not a huge sweets person, and I. Or a huge ice cream Yeah, I was going to say, I like that dessert as well, and I don't like See? sweets either. Right yeah. there. Well, look at the three of us, huh? Yeah. We should all go get it. <laughs> That's the next podcast. <laughs> the Milk and Honey podcast. <laughs> um, all right, what's the next question from Hillary? In two more years, you'll no longer be a teen chef. Is it scary or exciting to lose that label? I'm still going to be called that. Or it's going to be like the ex-teen chef. I guarantee it. I'm never going to lose that one. You're going to be like a Mickey Rooney or exactly. something, you know? Former child star. Formal, former, former, I, I can't, I don't know why I can't say that right now. Um, form, <laughs> former teen chef. Right. I want that on a business card. That's hilarious. I could technically put that former on a business teen card. Chef. Right? Former teen chef. Former teen chef, Flynn McGarry. You're technically still a teen chef, though. Like, we've covered Technically this. an adult, though, chef. But you're still a teen. Teen slash adult chef. Yeah, adult okay. teen chef. Adult teen chef. There's a there's a um, young adult. A a person who um, interacts with me on Instagram pretty regularly, and their handle is like kid chef, and I'm always like, why didn't I get that one? Well, it's kid chef and then other stuff, but like, I and and they're, they're super cool, like really smart. They have like cool photos. They do really cool things, and I'm I'm always like a little like, oh, like you're not gonna be a kid at some point and you're gonna have to change your instagram name like assuming instagram still exists and matters like that's the thing that i'm always i'm like that's you didn't you didn't future proof your handle you, you <laughs> like, gotta future proof the handle I mean, like, maybe i should be concerned about different things i don't know <laughs> but i like that business card idea you should actually do that former teen chef it's really good it should it could hey <laughs> you could hire a former teen chef to come to your like child's birthday party i mean in some if respect, none of this works out yeah Lucrative career yeah. in children's entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Next question. What's your guilty pleasure television show? I got a good one. Um, my three of my friends and I this summer, every week would watch The Bachelorette. Whoa. It's crazy, that show. I've never seen it. It's. I thought I was going to hate it. And my sister was like, no, you got to watch this. It's crazy. It's crazy. I don't understand. Like we, I've never thought I would be into a two and a half hour long. It's literally every episode is two, like two and a half hours. My God. It feels that way watching Twitter happen. Like whenever the show airs, yes, Twitter is nothing. Like, we became like, we were betting on it. It was fascinating. I and mean, then th I was like, I need to get a job again because I cannot be watching this show. <laughs> Have you seen that show Unreal? No. Which is a, it is a, not a reality show. It is a scripted oh, show about, about yes. the people who work on a reality show. Yes. That is, yes. it's very, very dark, and everybody is manipulative and awful. And it's amazing. I can totally see that happening. It's the best show. Have you heard about Chad? <laughs> no, wait. Who's Chad? Oh my god, Chad was on this season of Bachelorette, and he might be the craziest human being to ever grace reality television. Oh my god! And like, just messed everything. It, it, he was the only reason anyone watched it. And once he got off, we stopped watching it. Cause he just like you gotta look up some Chad things. All right, it's pretty great. I'm gonna I'm gonna spend some time brushing up on Chad. Um, like found. <laughs> I could go on about Chad all day. I want to hear more about Chad. We're gonna have a special offshoot <laughs> episode where it's just Flynn talking about Chad. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> Hillary, um, bring us home. 
Which of your cookbooks has the most dog-eared pages? I'd say... I think probably the French Laundry cookbook. Because that was like... I still have the, the, the one that I got when I was 10. And I like... Was obs- like became obsessed with it and would put a thing on every single page, and then after that, I I don't I don't really like put sticky notes in in pages anymore. I'll like write it down because it doesn't look very. <laughs> What's your most used or your most referenced cookbook on a like regular basis? I don't really reference cookbooks that much. I'd say probably most referenced cookbook is maybe like I love Madison Park. That's probably the one that I like if if I'm like, oh, what do they put in their chicken jus or something that I can't remember? That's sort of the one that I go back to for things like that. Okay. Okay, and hit us again, Hillary. L.A. or New York City? New York. All right. I'll buy that. LA, LA, <laughs> that plays. L.A. part-time. <laughs> L.A. as a pop-up city. L.A. during the winter. Yeah, no, L- yeah. L.A. during January, February. Totally cool with that. Yeah. But New York, New York, all New the York, rest. the rest of the time, I'm good with. All right. Well, our New York listeners will love to hear that, and everyone else. Maybe not August. I don't like August here. It's a little swampy. I'd rather actually be here in January than August. Okay, so <laughs> LA in February and August. Sure. And New York the rest of the time. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, Flynn, thanks for awesome. joining us here on the Eater Up for stopping by, Flynn. Um, if our listeners want to check you out, where on the internet can they find you? Um, if you want to learn more about the pop-up, you can go to EurekaNYC.com. Uh, I'm at Dining with Flynn on the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well. I don't really post on Facebook that much. Uh, but it posts all my Instagrams, so you can, if you're not a big Instagrammer, you can see the photos through there. Cool. Awesome. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Craig Morabito. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are. <laughs>